This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 359. Inheriting wealth is not a direct path to happiness. I mean, the number of people that I grew up with had meaningless, useless lives, maybe because of drugs or getting in trouble with the law or many divorces. If, if you have wealth, I think you can mess up your life in, on an even greater scale. Hey there, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I'm Jeff Brown, and I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, and intentional and consistent reading is a must. I'm excited because today we're going to sit down with Mitzi Perdue as we dive into one of her many books called How to Make Your Family Business Last. Techniques, advice, checklists, and resources for keeping the family business in the family. I'll be asking Mitzi to share about things like how to make sure you're putting family first, using traditions to strengthen family bonds, why you should consider creating what she calls an ethical will, and plenty more. If I were to break it down, I would say Mitzi's book is about families that have a positive culture focus, not just on the business and and making a living. They also invest the time and the effort into teaching values. And they know that sometimes there's a choice between having a relationship and being right And choosing being right over having a relationship means sacrificing much of what makes life meaningful and and worthwhile. If you stay with me for the next 30 minutes, I promise you it'll be time well spent. You may have heard that I've got a book coming out in just a few months. It's going to hit store shelves on August the 31st. It's already available on Amazon for pre-order. It's called Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. And if that title resonates with you, and I think if you're listening to a podcast like this one, it probably does, I'd love it if you'd pre-order it right now by just going to readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. That'll redirect you to where you can find the book on Amazon. Again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash book, or simply go to Amazon and search Read to Lead. My friend Dan Miller, who's been on the show a couple of times, is quoted in the book. And one of the things he said in regard to having read an early manuscript was that growing up in a poor family with no radio or TV, he found books to be his his lifeline to a broader world. And those books took him to places around the world, allowed him to learn from the brightest minds in history, and opened the doors to a life of, of richness and joy. Books, Dan says are his most prized possessions today, not because of their monetary value, but because of what they represent in transforming his life. And about Read to Lead, the book, he says, here's a guide to enhance your life and explode your opportunities for leading well. Thank you for that, Dan. Again, I hope you'll check it out. Consider pre-ordering it right now. If you'd like to do that, go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. Well, Mitzi Perdue is the daughter of one business titan. Her father co-founded the Sheraton Hotel chain and the widow of another. Her late husband was the poultry magnate Frank Perdue. Both men used reading as a tool for success, by the way. Mitzi is a prolific writer and researcher. Her column, The Environment and You, was syndicated to 420 newspapers. And at one point, she was the most widely syndicated environmental writer in the country. In the past couple of years, she's published more than 100 articles, and during that time, she's also written two books, 52 Ways to Combat Human Trafficking and How to Be Up in Down Times. 
She's particularly proud of having been a commissioner on the National Commission on Libraries and Information Science. The book we're looking at again today is 2017's How to Make Your Family Business Last, Techniques, Advice, Checklists, and Resources for Keeping the Family Business in the Family. Well, Mitzi, uh, I'm excited to have you here. Welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. Well, I'm overjoyed to be here because, oh, that's almost the premise of my life. <laughs> well, before you think that uh, this is just a book about people who uh, run and own uh, family businesses, know that as I read this, I've found a lot of great advice for just family, period. Uh, not, not just family business, but just if you have a family, read this book is what I'm trying to say. Aww. Well, let's jump in uh, with this thing that you call this tug of war, uh, Mitzi, between the individual uh, and the family as it relates to, to family-owned businesses. What does your experience tell you about the importance of putting family first? Well, for a start, if you're a family business, your odds of making it to the next generation are only 30%. Why it's only 30% is family quarrels family relationships. And my premise in in books that I've written and things that I believe is that every single family that exists has a culture, but is it a culture that came about by design or by accident? And my final point on this is if you don't develop a culture intentionally that helps kids learn ahead of time or family members learn ahead of time, that the family's really important, your family may not last. Uh, that, that is such important advice for, for life in general, just the intentionality of how we live our lives. And I love that phrase of by design or by default. I think there, there's so much truth in that. How have you, Mincy, used traditions to strengthen your family's bond? I really enjoyed particularly reading about this in, in your book. Oh, I thank you. There's a phrase, I heard it somewhere and memorized it, that says, tradition is the lifeblood of identity. And if you want to have a strong, flourishing family, use traditions. Mm-hmm. Allow me to explain a little bit about where I'm coming from in saying mm-hmm. this. My family of origin, the Henderson family, began in 1840. That means we are 181 years old. And we've been having a tradition of family reunions since 1890. We have just celebrated last year our 130th reunion. Wow. How did we get to last that long? And I'm going to say traditions. I mean, kids grow up knowing, hey, one of the most exciting, wonderful events of the year is getting together and celebrating what it means to be us. Mm. That's my family of origin. It it is a business family. My father was the co-founder and president of the Sheraton Hotel chain, which we sold, by the way, but we're still together as a family that invests together. But my family by marriage has also lasted We're now in our 101st year. And your chances of having your family business last for 100 years is one in a thousand. One of the big factors that keeps a family together as a family business is philanthropy. But by the time you're maybe second, third, fourth generation, there may be very few family members working in the business, but you can still get your identity as a family thinking that you know, we're the good guys if you're philanthropic. And Dennis Jaffe says, and I've observed this myself, that at least by the third generation, family businesses discover the importance of, of philanthropy. And if they don't, the family's likely to go poof. You know, another thing I thought was fascinating, I don't know if that's the right word, that, that you and your family does is, is the way in which you welcome in new members. What, what are some examples of some of the things that you like to do to those marrying into the family and the business to make them feel welcome? 
In the case of both families, my birth family and my family by marriage, we put tremendous effort into making the new members feel welcome because what good does it do of the family if, if there's somebody who feels, eh, I'm an outsider, I'm not one of us. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, the, you know, the number of things that we do. I'll share the biggest and least practical one. <laughs> and, and then I promise to get into more practical ones. But the Henderson family, you know, we're now probably like 90 members. Mm-hmm. And my family, my Henderson family, somehow has a penchant for inviting people from other countries into the family. I mean, <laughs> we have the most recent is a Korean, mm-hmm. uh, but also Chinese, Japanese, Thailand, El Salvador, Germany, Italy. I mean, we just we're very, very international. So one of the things that we do, and actually this could apply to any family, at least if you're third or fourth generation, we have a ceremony. We've got many ceremonies, but one of them is if a family member has married somebody, say from South Korea, Beijing, whatever, a lot of the elderly members of the family can't travel there. When the bride is welcomed into the family in the United States, we recreate the entire wedding ceremony. The bride gets to wear her dress over again. The groom wears, you know, his tuxedo or whatever they chose to wear. We have attendants, flower girls, uh, ring bearers, and we even invite them to say their wedding vows in front of mm-hmm. uh, a family member who happens to be officially allowed to to officiate at weddings. And he takes them through the exact same thing, except this time it's shared with all the family members here. Mm. And the brides tell me that they get as excited their second time around as the first. (laughs) And sometimes it even means more to them to recite their vows now that they've been married. And it's just a really cool way of of like knitting the families together. But then let's get to more practical. In the Henderson family, we have a what it means to be us book. It's literally a book. And in, in the case of the Hendersons, there, there are probably 60 chapters. Each chapter is like a page or two. And it's a little essay from a family member on what it means to be us, you know, why they value being a Henderson. And say it's my brother, Barkley Henderson. It will have his date of birth. It will have his motto. It will have a brief description of, you know, just three or four adjectives of what the family means to him. And then there will be an essay on what it's meant to him, you know, in maybe 300 words, to be a member of this ongoing family. Mm. Well, the great advantage of this book is it gets everybody thinking consciously, intentionally, hey, we're a member of something just extraordinary. Mm. And we don't take it for granted because we've actually written an essay on it. And then when a new member of the family comes in, they'll get a copy of the book and photographs of of the people and they'll know what their interests are. And it's just a wonderful way of introducing the the family member. Then other things that we do in the Purdue family, my my late husband, Frank Purdue, he had many hobbies, but one of them was he was a treasure hunter. Mm. Is that not cool? (laughs) And he was part of the group that recovered the treasure ship Atocha from 1622. Well, there were thousands and thousands of silver coins on this ship. And I happen to have inherited some of them, not thousands, but maybe a hundred. And every new female member of the Purdue family is given a heavy silver chain with one of these silver coins. And it's, you know, it's, it's a gift saying, we welcome you to the family. You're now part of a tradition that goes way back. And, you know, we have a ceremony when we give it to them. Mm. We, we have welcome packages for them in which they're, they're, it's not quite a shower, but it's just... Yeah, you know, there, there's the book, there's the coin, there's 
They're, they're just everything to make this person feel, we love you, we welcome you. And in both families, we have a family newsletter. And when there's an engagement, I interview the bride or the groom and I'll ask, tell me about yourself. You know, what, what are your hopes? What, what about the future? How did you meet? What are your hobbies? What do you like to do with your spare time? What are your deepest values? So by the time people meet the new member, the new to be member of the family, they've all been able to read maybe a thousand words on what this person is like. And so we, you know, it's not awkwardly standing around, mm, who are you? No, we already slightly know the person. Mm. I love that the book idea, you know, that something like that today, especially, it's so easy for any family to create something like that. The, the tools to do that are readily available to you. So there's no excuse not to do something like that. Love it. Also, it's majorly fun to have a what it means to be us book because I think people kind of enjoy looking around and thinking, you know, this is, this is what we have. Let's not take it for granted. Mm. But then another super advantage of writing this book is I'm 79. I get to know what a 12-year-old is thinking about the world. <laughs> they get to know what, what makes me tick. Wow. It's, it's just such a positive thing. I recommend it to anybody. Uh, another thing that, that really intrigued me is when you share a bit about the concept of an ethical will, uh, how has that managed to impact uh, the Purdue family? When Frank was 80 and he had Parkinson's, so he knew his days were numbered and he's, you know, he's thinking of eternity and he's thinking of the next generation in a very positive way. He felt that you know, he's going to leave them material goods. But as Frank knew, as I know, and as I bet most of our audience knows, inheriting wealth is not a direct path to happiness. Mm. I mean, a number of people that I grew up with had basically kind of meaningless, useless lives, maybe because of drugs or getting in trouble with the law or many divorces. If, if you have wealth, I think you can mess up your life in, on an even greater scale. Mm. That wealth is is not a guarantee to happiness. Frank knew that. So Frank thought, what does make people happy? And he was a very smart man and he put you know deep thought into this. And he came to the conclusion that if you want to have a happy life, it's based on values. It's based on being enough of a person of value that, that people want to be around you, that they trust you, that uh, that you have a whole network of, of people who care about you. Mm. And how do you get there? Well, we spent three days writing all the values that we thought would make people happy. And we came up with about 50. But Frank realized, being a smart man, that nobody's going to memorize 50. Not practical. So right. you know, the Ten Commandments seemed like a really good idea. <laughs> uh, I mean, somebody knew what they were doing when they came up with the Ten Commandments, because that's a number you can grasp. So Frank, in his ethical will, you know, he knew he would leave people material possessions, but he wanted to leave something more valuable, which mm. is recipes for a happy life. We narrowed it down to 10 and I'll share with you some of the things that were on it. Number one was be honest, always. Mm. Number two, be a person whom others are justified in trusting. I mean, how do you get good friends if people don't trust you? How do you get hired mm. if people don't trust you? You know, it's just basic. All right, here's one that's directly related to happiness. If you want to be happy, think what you can do for somebody else. If you'd really like to be miserable, think what's owed to you. Is that not just a brilliant insight? Yeah, very much. That was one of my favorite quotes from the book. I actually wrote that one down. When, when you're just feeling good about the world, are you thinking about what you can do for somebody else? 
On the other hand, when you're really feeling down, and I'm assuming that this isn't because somebody you love is is sick or something. You know, there, there are a whole lot of situations with, where this will not apply. But in average garden variety situations, uh, at least examining my own life, when I'm miserable, it's because I feel that I'm not getting something that was owed to me. Mm. So, you know, far better to focus on what you can do for others than, than what's owed for you. You know, another one that on, on his ethical will, learn from the mistakes of those who came before mm. and build on their strengths. Well, I think we all stand on the shoulders of the people that have come before us and that we've learned from along the way, for sure. Well, let me share how he used this. He had 10 grandchildren. At his, uh, at his funeral, each child would read one of the 10 parts of his ethical will. And it was just extraordinarily moving to kind of unveil it on that occasion. Wow. You know, I'm not saying that we totally live up to it, but it's certainly a goal. It's something that we strive for. I, I love that he took the time to identify the ideal. What does the ideal Purdue family member look like? What do they act like? How do they conduct themselves? As you said, we're not always going to hit it, but unless we've identified what the ideal looks like, we have no chance to. Um, Describe uh, what you mean when you say that communication skills can be a magic shortcut to influence. Oh, I believe that with all my heart. Mm. Uh, And I recommend that to anybody. If you happen to be where I was 40 years ago, (laughs) almost 50 years ago, I I was so shy that it was literally hard for me to use the telephone. Mm. Uh, The idea of walking into a room with strangers, I, I, I couldn't have done it. But at some point I realized... You know, I can't do anything in life if I'm if if I just plain give in to this shyness. Got to do something about it. Mm. So here's what I did. Ah, and it involves reading, but it also involves taking courses. I made myself take the business and professional women's club personal development class, and mm. that was basically a public speaking class. Mm. But it was also a parliamentary procedure and just a lot of things that would give me skills. But I was so shy, you know, even entering the room to take the course that the the teacher, her name was Robbie Robinson. She told me later that she took one look at me and she sized up my whole case, which was (laughs) this woman is insufferably shy. (laughs) And so she, there, there was a part at the beginning of the course where we had to go around and say our names and where we were from. Mm. And I was so shy that I could, maybe get out my name, but I wasn't sure I could get out my where I was from at the same time. And Robbie sensed this, and she told the class, she told me later that she made this exception for this class and never before and never afterwards. She said, when you stand up to give your name and where you're from, it's okay to hang on for dear life to the, to the back of the chair in front of you. Uh, but, but then something really, really neat happened. The more I read books on public speaking, the more I attended classes. I took the Dale Carnegie public speaking course. I've taken, I bet you I've taken half a dozen courses at least mm. in public speaking. And I'm living proof that you can get over it. But I'm also li- living proof that from doing almost nothing with my life to having a life that I, I regard as from heaven, mm. uh, shortly after I was overcoming my fear of public speaking, I ended up being invited to be on a television show because I was a rice farmer at that point in my life. And we're talking 1970s. And it's very easy to be shy and being a rice farmer because <laughs> you don't interact with a whole lot of people when you're walking through the fields. <laughs> I was invited to be on a television show to talk about being a lady rice grower. But I was also invited to talk about why rice growers need to do a practice that 
the public hated, which was burning their fields afterwards. And in this article, I explained why we did it. There was something called stem rot that if a field was infected the next year, you wouldn't get a crop. If I hadn't had a little bit of training from taking these courses, I wouldn't have been able to be a guest. Mm. And then when I was a guest, I was so passionate about what I wanted to talk about that just the neatest thing in the world and the most surprising thing in the world for me was at the end of it, I felt that, you know, it was just easy to talk and I loved it and I loved communicating with people and I hadn't known that I would love it. (laughs) And the station manager came up afterwards. He had caught the show and he said, you're natural for television. Would you like a job? (laughs) Going from somebody in the space of one year, from somebody too shy to use the telephone (laughs) to being the hostess of a TV show. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I, I'm someone who can identify with that, having been terrified to be forced to take a public speaking class in high school to having a 26-year career in radio and, you know, turning on a microphone at any given moment, you know, thousands of people hearing my voice to public speaking and all that. Yeah, I used to be terrified of that. But uh, yeah, it's amazing how when you apply yourself, it can actually not only be something you get over, but something you just absolutely love. Actually, almost crave because at, you know, <laughs> it seems to me so odd that my biggest Phobia became the greatest source of, of pleasure and joy and delight and service. Yeah. I mean, how, how, how could that be? But, but it <laughs> happened. Well, th- there's a new term I have learned uh, from Mitzi that, that I just love. And I want to ask you a question, Mitzi, that relates to, to that new term you made up in your book. Uh, give us a, a bit of insight into your history with, with reading, the impact that books have had on your life, the habit of reading consistently and with intention, the way your whole family does everything. How has that played a role in your success, not only for you, but for Frank and your father and, and what it means to be an M- in let's see, let me get find Informivore. Right. Informivore. There we go. <laughs> Actually, I believe I made up the word, but it, it's such, in a way, an obvious word that I bet a hundred thousand people have already invented <laughs> besides me. But an an informivore consumes information. We talked for a moment, you and I, about how how communication and public speaking is a shortcut to success. Mm. I mean, the the number of doors that communicating has opened for me is endless, but I would say even more being an informivore. I'll explain it by giving an example from my late father. And as I've mentioned, he was the co-founder and president of the Sheraton Hotel chain. Father, as a good informivore, had a problem. By the time he was 26, he'd never really done anything in his life. And he was on the cusp of getting married. My mother, who came from a fairly wealthy grain family from West Virginia, and she was meeting her future mother-in-law for the first time. And her mother-in-law told her, Molly, don't marry Ernest. He can never stick to anything. You'll end up poor. Mm. Well, mother said, I don't care. I love him. And they did marry. But my goodness, what a wake up call from my father. You know, he's about to undertake marriage and presumably a family. And if he can't stick to anything, what should he do? Well, he went to the yellow pages. And as almost like a researcher, he found somebody, a career guidance counselor. The man's name was Johnson O'Connor. Johnson O'Connor spent, I think, like eight hours giving father every personality test you could think of, (laughs) trying to figure out, now, first, why can't you stick with anything? And second, what should you be doing with your life, with your skills? Mm. At the end of the eight hours, he told my father, you're clearly a, a very bright guy and you have a degree from MIT. 
what you really should do is have a career as a scientist in a laboratory where you won't interact with anybody. <laughs> and my reason for suggesting that you have a career where you don't interact with anybody is you have the worst human relations skills I've ever come across. <laughs> ouch. <laughs> yeah, super ouch. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, father told me about this later. He said, you know, he could have followed the career guidance, but he also said just by thinking and like meditating on it, mm. he figured out that any success in life depends on other people. And that if he had such lousy skills, he better try to address that. And so he began taking courses. He took public speaking courses. He took salesmanship courses. He told me, that not only did he take the Dale Carnegie Win Friends and Influence People course, for the rest of his life, he'd read it every 10 years because he did feel that, that getting along with people was the essential for having a satisfying life. Mm. And if he, didn't, you know, if he didn't have the ability naturally, he was going to study it. And he said, one good idea can change your life. And if you have lots, of, if you put yourself in the way of lots and lots of good ideas, mm. uh, you can achieve success beyond your wildest imagination. Well, one of the things that he read books on just endlessly was books in psychology. And later on, when he became successful, say he'd read a book that, that really caught his imagination, and now he's head of a major hotel chain, he'd invite people like B.F. Skinner, psychologist. Mm -hmm. uh, he'd be a house guest for a weekend for us. Or Eddie <laughs> Bernays, who was known as the father of modern advertising. Father would just so put himself in the way of good ideas in things that would help him have a better, deeper understanding of human nature. You know, it's sort of like your story and my story. The thing that was most difficult for you and me, and that mm. is public speaking, for him, the ability to understand other people was his greatest weakness. Mm. By study, whether it was reading, taking courses, or meeting people, or just putting himself in the way of new information that would give him more enlightenment of what made people tick, what motivated them. What made, like for his employees, made them want to go the extra mile and stay with him for life. Mm. He mastered that. That was, in my opinion, the reason for the success of Sheraton. And for that matter, it was his opinion too, because you know, he told me it's the people at every level that made Sheraton a success. Mm. So his greatest weakness, which was how to get along with people, became his greatest strength because mm. he put so much study and effort into figuring it out. And since since you have a lot of experience and you've met many people, I, I have the greatest personal curiosity of, is the best approach to life just to build on your strengths? Or is it to just put fantastic focus on the things that scare you and you're not good at? And, and my instinct would be to say, build on your strengths. Mm -hmm. uh, but look at the example of you, me, and my father. Our greatest weaknesses became our, our greatest assets. Yeah, I think too many of us are uh, content with living in our comfort zone. Yeah. And I, I think outside our comfort zone is, is where the magic happens. I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt who once said, do one thing every day that scares you. Yes. Uh, and I think, I think when we live life like that, we won't get to the end of our lives and go, gee, I have regret for all these things I never attempted. I wish I could attempt those things. Instead, we get to the end of our life uh, fulfilled and content because we didn't hold back. We did all those things that maybe other people didn't attempt because we realize the value of living outside our comfort zones and how impactful that can be. Okay. I, I have mentioned that I'm 79 and very mm. proud of it. Mm. I'm starting a new job. Oh, are you? 
Yes. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. The first part of it will take place in March. So I won't mm. say the name of the company at this point, but a very major international television show has asked me to host a half hour show. Oh, Ooh. wow. Congratulations. Is it too early to ask what the uh, focus of the show will be? Or, or is- oh, no, I'm, I'm eagerly talk about that. It's the environment. I will be interviewing authors of very big, important environmental books. And mm. since I've got experience in doing this, I wrote an environmental column you know, for a good bit of my life. So, mm. you know, I know the background, but I'm so happy <laughs> <laughs> that I'm still in the game that I'm not out to pasture. <laughs> well, it's funny. I was just about to ask you, you know, what's ahead for you that you're excited about and able to share. And there it is. That's that's amazing. That is so incredible. Well, the book, again, the one we focused on today is how to make your family business last techniques, advice, checklists and resources for keeping the family business in the family. Again, it's Mitzi Purdue, P-E-R-D-U-E. Mitzi, thank you so much for uh, coming on today and being a part of the Reach Lead podcast. I had a lot of fun chatting with you today. I enjoyed myself more than is legal. (laughs) I love it. Hey, if you want to connect with Mitzi, dig deeper into our conversation and check out those resources we talked about, visit the page on my website that I've created just for this episode. You'll find it at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 359 for episode 359. In the coming weeks, we'll be chatting with authors like former Wall Street Journal career columnist Joanne Lublin and dive into her book, Power Moms, How Executive Mothers Navigate Work and Life. Also, Michael Shine's The Hype Handbook and Mark Hirschberg's The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. That and more on the way here on the Read to Lead podcast. Don't forget to consider adding my upcoming book to your list of reads this year. It's called Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. While that concept is one you're likely already on board with, how many people in your life aren't? Who in your life might need a copy of this book? Again, it's already available for pre-order right now on Amazon, readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. Thank you again for joining me for this episode of the podcast. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.